think this guy's in with a um, with a chance, with a shot. Or maybe a soldier ant. I haven't got a soldier ant up there. Don't don't take this too seriously, honestly. It's it's one of my most ridiculous introductions to a preach, but I'm hoping it's going to be memorable. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Go for it. Go for it. I don't know anything about ants. I'm just saying that look, in my brief five-minute bit of research, this is what came up. That's a leaf cutter ant. I didn't know there were so many, you know, ants. It's true. That he's got to be up there. He can hold up to 50 times his own body weight, which is incredible. I struggle to hold my uh, two-year-old daughter for more than 30 seconds. And, um, and it, like, there's more varieties, successful, successful antlers, more varieties of this ant than any other in the world. Um, and they move in the biggest, what do you call them, packs, herds, colonies. Thank you so much, scientists, for helping me out here. You, you can see that I wasn't in my sweet spot of knowledge when I came up with this introduction. Secondly, this one, I'm just going to, uh, Dinotherna, something like that. Anyway, biggest ant. Look, that is a, that is a two-inch ant. A two, yeah, that is massive. Like, that's the king of ants right there. So I reckon he's in with a chance. And apparently he's got a sting in his tail that can cause a 48-hour um, pain in, in the nervous system of human human beings. So he's quite literally a badass ant. Thanks for that. Look at that. Or maybe it's this guy. Now you can see how loud I'm still Ant-Man. You know, he can shrink pretty small, he's pretty strong, he can grow pretty big. I think he's an Avenger now, is he? Yeah? Maybe. So he's on the fringes. And he's played by Paul Rudd, who's pretty witty. So these were my... I, listen, can anybody see, does anybody know what's coming yet? What's that? Who spotted it? Elephant? Oh, no, that would be, that would be, I didn't even go there, no. I, I was hoping Ken, Ken Bruce had leave poorly today, but I think he'd be sighing already. Honestly, this is horrible, but none of these are the strongest ants in the world. In fact, this is a covenant. That is exactly the reaction I wanted, God bless you. A covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant at its heart is a unique type of promise. You can see I've changed my tone now. I want you to listen to this bit. Where two parties willingly commit to each other for all time. In a way that no circumstance, no change of season or mood or situation can ever break. It is literally a point at which two parties, I was imagining a time like here, can come together. They entwine and bind and become one for the rest of their living days. This is why it's the most powerful ant in the world, because it's an unbreakable ant. Now, marriage done well is a great example of covenant, where two parties willingly agree to sacrifice their rights and choose to love and care for each other the rest of their lives, forsaking all others. And in a, in a good marriage... Um, you see the power of covenant at work. There's, there's one that always stands out, a story that always stands out, the story of B.B. Warfield, who was, um, in the early 1900s, he was uh, a professor at Princeton for 21 years, wrote some amazing books. But what a lot of people don't know about him is that at the age of, I think it was 20, 21, he married uh, a woman called Anna, Anna, Kin, Anna Kincaid. And they went on honeymoon to, uh, to Germany. And whilst they were in Germany, a huge storm swelled up and she was struck by lightning, paralyzing her from the chest down. Literally a week into the marriage. Can you imagine with all the hopes and dreams that go with marriage? 
like what that would have done for the couple. But the story of B.B. Warfield is that he cared for her for 39 years until her death from that day onwards. It did not break or influence the fact that he had agreed an unbreakable promise with his wife, even though she was so handicapped that this meant he barely left the house for more than two hours at a time for 39 years. Nothing expresses the power of covenant more than this story to me, apart from the story that I'm going to share from the Bible today, actually. This crippled, disabled lady, for the entirety of her life, knew love, care, support, even though it came at a cost of her husband, because he had covenanted to her. Do you see the power? Covenant, when understood and lived out, is powerful. And if we truly want to understand the God of the Bible and God of Christianity, we have to understand that he is a covenant God. If we truly want to get the security that he wants us to live in as people, we have to understand that he is a God that makes these unbreakable promises to us. And no place do we see this more than the life of Abraham, found in Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. And the manner in which, you know, Abraham, this guy, or Abram as he started, later Abraham, we'll get to that, lived in a land called Ur, around 800 years after Noah and the flood. He was simply a pagan shepherd from a pagan city who suffered from the same sin problems as everyone else. But as we look at his story, we see that four clear times in his life, God makes an incredible, unbreakable promise to him. And in return, all he asks him to do is to have faith in him, to trust him and obey him, to do the opposite of what Adam did at the tree. I just want to look at these four promises briefly with you. The first one. The very first time God spoke is the first time that we actually meet Abram in the Bible. And he said this in Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This first promise literally comes out of nowhere. We get no explanation for why God chose Abram. There is no sense of Abram deserving it because he is a good man or more godly than the next. It is simply that the God of heaven chose a 75-year-old pagan herdsman to give an unbreakable promise to. That he will bless him and pour out goodness on him. That he will make his name great protect him and his family and make him a means of pouring out goodness on all the people of the earth. Pretty great promises. And in this from nowhere moment, what we have to understand is that God sacrifices all other peoples to wed himself to Abram and his family. And what does he ask in return? Simply that Abraham trust him for himself and his family, his kinsmen, and move house. 
to go to the country I will show you. And you know what? In the first part of Abram's story, he nearly lives up to his end of the bargain. He gets his family and he leaves the land of Ur, where generations of his family have been before him. And he moves in the direction that God speaks. But soon after this, the going gets tough. As Abram follows God, he and his family are led into Egypt, an already powerful nation, because of a famine. And as they arrive, Abram, acting out of fear, essentially prostitutes his own wife out to Pharaoh to save his own life and be well treated. Genesis 12.11 says this. Well, in Genesis 12.11, we read that because of his wife's beauty, he was afraid that Pharaoh would have him killed so he could take her for himself. So he tells her to say that he is his sister and allows Pharaoh to take her into his household at his own. Do you know, honestly, if I had contrived this plan with Becky, she would have straight up murdered me. Please just lie to this guy so that I don't get killed and I'm all right. Uh, yeah, you're going to have to go into his household. You see, the first sign of trouble, the first time God's promise is tested in his life, Abraham's faith in God's protection of his family falters. He does not believe that God will come through on his promise to curse anyone who dishonors him. What is amazing here, though, is that although Abraham's covenant commitment fails, God's doesn't. God makes good on his promise anyway. In Genesis 12, 17, he curses Pharaoh with sickness for taking Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh, realizing what Abraham has done, gives her back and kicks them out of Egypt. God makes a promise he lived up to, even when Abraham's end of the bargain, his faith fails. The second covenant promise God makes to this pagan sheep farmer comes a number of years later when we read this in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abraham said, O oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able, number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, essentially, God's second promise to Abraham comes a point at which, again, Abraham is not trusting God. By now, he's at least 80. I mean, I, was, I think Jim's the oldest guy in the church, isn't he? Is that, is that right? But are you a close second, Jack? Like, he's, he's older He's older than Jack is in, in years. I just want to say, like, it's great to have guys of faith like Jim and Jack amongst us. It's amazing examples. Thank you. But at this point, he's not had children, 
and wife. Yeah, and his wife. He's not had children with his wife, sorry. And out of fear and mistrust, he's questioning God's ability to give him reward in life. He's saying this, how are you going to bless me, an old man, when you haven't even given me a child? How are you going to accomplish what you said when all I have is going to go to a bloke outside my family when I die? Kind of distrust. But, you know, despite Abraham failing a second time to live up to his end of the bargain here, to simply trust God for himself and his family, God gives a second, clearer, unbreakable promise that builds on the first one he has given. Inviting him to go and look at the stars, he promises that he will have a family line that will be as numerous as them. And again, just in this moment, if you look closely, you see that God is faithful and is expanding his promise and blessing even when Abraham is unfaithful. And in fact, if Abraham fails, God actually gives him faith to carry on. We read as he heard God's voice and looked at the stars, fresh faith arose in him. God was giving him what he needed to live out his end of the bargain here. God was faithful when Abraham wasn't. The third time God makes a promise to Abraham is over a decade after the last. And, you know, it's the same story all over again. Let's just read it. Big promises from God. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring and you, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to you, your offspring after you. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Do you know, again, in, in this promise, we see God out of nowhere build on his promise to Abraham. He renames him Abraham, which means father of a multitude, to reinforce what he's doing. And promises that nations and kings will come from his line. That he will be exceedingly fruitful. That God would be totally committed to him and all came in the line after him. And most importantly, that his wife, now an old barren woman, would bear a miracle child who would be the true heir of all that followed. Remarkable promises. Remarkable promises. Do you know, but again, in the years that follow, we see a repeating pattern. Initially, Abraham's face is strong, and at God's request, he has all the males in his tribe circumcised as a sign of trust in God's promise. It's no, no mean feat, really, actually leading people through that. There's some good faith there. Just imagine if we as a leadership team came and said, hi, we feel that God's really leading us to go through this painful operation. But again, soon after, his family encounters another powerful king like Pharaoh, Abimelech. And shockingly, 
Again, Abraham, to preserve his life, says that Sarah, the one who God has just promised, will bear him a miracle son to be his heir. He tells her to be his sister again and allows Abimelech to take her as a wife. He still hasn't learned how to trust God's promise fully. But again, God is faithful to his promise. He shows Abimelech in a dream that Sarah is Abraham's wife, prevents him from sleeping with her, and stops all children in Abimelech's kingdom being born until she is handed back. And just like Pharaoh, Abimelech gives Abraham back his wife because of God's faithfulness. You know, despite Abraham's consistent, constant failure in faith, God does not break his covenant with this broken man. Instead, like Warfield was to his broken wife, he is faithful to his promise, always. And shortly after this incident, Sarah, in her old age, gives birth to Isaac, the miraculous son of laughter. Again, God was faithful to his promise, and Abraham was not. God, if you ever wonder how many times, how many times can I fail? Christianity. How many times can I fall off those high places of faith, going down to those low places, no, those droughts of faith? Look at Abraham's life. Look at it. Look at this repeating pattern. Because he tells us that God will never stop being committed to you. Never, ever stop being committed to you. The final promise. You know, God's final covenant promise to Abraham is different. All the other times he has simply shown his faith to Abraham, his, uh, his word to Abraham and his promise. This time, however, God tests Abraham's commitment to the covenant before repeating his promise. By this time in Abraham's story, Isaac, the miraculous child, was a young teenager. And Abraham, as an old, <laughs> an old man, when out of nowhere, God makes an sh- impossibly shocking ask of him. In Genesis 2.22, in what has to be one of the most painful passages in the Bible, God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. Go and burn your beloved son, alive. Go and kill him. Give Sarah's child, the one whom I have promised, nations will come after. Blessings and multitudes, this child of miracle and joy, and kill him on an altar in the mountain. This must have been utterly devastating for Abraham. For Abraham, now a different man from walking for over 30 years with God, remarkably obeyed. The next day he took his son to the mountain range where God had sent him. And as he approached Moriah, he tied the wood for the offering on his son's back. Took the fire and the knife for the offering himself. And both walked up the hill, carrying their heavy burden together. And as they walked, we read that Isaac struck up a brief conversation with his father. Father, he said. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. 
We have the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb for the offering? God himself will provide it, my son, replied Abraham in hope beyond hope. And as they reached the mountain place that God had directed them towards, they arranged the altar, and the father bound his trusting son. And in that sign of trouble or struggle from the son against his aged father, Isaac was placed on the altar. Then, with the faith and obedience God had asked from him from the beginning of their relationship, Abraham reached for his knife, and just as he was about to slay his son on the altar, stop, stop, came a voice from heaven. Do not do anything to the boy. And Abraham looks up. And he sees that caught in a thorny thicket by its horns was a ram who was killed as a sacrifice, as provided by God in the place of Isaac. And as he killed it, Abraham, in what I can imagine is just the deepest sense of relief that you could ever feel, renamed the place the Lord will provide. And it was only after this act of faith that we see the final promise from God to Abraham in Genesis 22, 16 to 18. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You know, in this challenging story, Abraham's complete faith so clearly pleases God. This is clearly the total trust he had been seeking from him from the beginning of their relationship. But even as Abraham gets his end of the bargain right for the first time, we learn something else here about God's unbreakable promise. Just as it was never broken by Abraham's repeated failure, it was never dependent on his success either or the sacrifice he was willing to make for God. What we learn here through Abraham's great faith is that God never intended for him to sacrifice his son, but instead wanted him to learn once and for all that his promises were always based on his provision, on what he would do for man. His initiative, his action, his faithfulness, his sacrifice. And Abraham's exceptional faith in this, situ in this situation simply unveils this. It reveals it clearly. As Abraham displayed faith here, the extent of the covenant of God's goodness and the nature of his unbreakable promises is shown. But there's more than this in here. There has to be. This is called glimpses of Jesus. As God teaches us these things about himself and his promises, perhaps more than any other place in the Bible that I can find, Abraham's faith establishes in history 
a picture of what God wanted to do in Jesus like no other. Jesus is so clearly in the mind of God as he walks Abraham and Isaac up that hill in his final covenant confirmation. And all of it points to the greater covenant promise God planned to achieve in Christ. Let me show you. You see, a couple of thousand years after this moment, another miracle child and the only beloved son would be asked to walk up the very same hills in the very same mountain range where the city of Jerusalem was now placed. However, this time, it was God's own son, Jesus, the one who throughout his short life had moved in power and miracles, love and authority and justice like no other. And this son, like Isaac, was an innocent party, doing nothing to deserve the death that he walked towards. Yet he too walked trusting his father implicitly, carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his back. Only this son was carrying an instrument for the most painful, inhumane death man could devise on his back. The crossbeam for a crucifixion. A humiliating death reserved for the worst of men. Yet he was entirely faultless. There was no wrong in him whatsoever, let alone cause to crucify him. The injustice of his death was a hundredfold that of Isaac's. But despite this injustice, this son also gave no struggle. Allowing himself to be, not to be bound, but nailed. If you are the son of God, come down from there. The onlookers mocked. But his will to obey his father kept him there, like Isaac's. But this time, there was no alternative sacrifice, no last-minute reprieve, no angelic intervention. You see, this son was God's provided sacrifice. He was God's provision on the mountain. He was the ram caught in the thicket, the crown of thorns dug into his head, the nails held him fast. Oh, this son's father never got the reprieve that Abraham had. He had to watch his one and only son, whom he loved, die in agony at the hands of men who had come to bless. This time, Jesus endured the searing pain, death, and separation at loss at the hands of his father. And his father knew the agony of ending his own son's beloved life. It was a moment of designed, utter and devastating pain for father and son. Why did God plan this through history? Why did God and Jesus do this? Why did they endure this unbearable suffering and pain together? Why did Abraham's life 2,000 years before point to it for us? Two things. Firstly, he endured it so we wouldn't have to. 
1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Now the cross was a rescue plan by father and son designed together to take the brokenness of humanity. Just like the ram took the place of Isaac, Jesus took our place. He took the costs and the consequences of all of your wrongdoing in our place so we wouldn't have to. Make no mistake, it was love and mercy for you. For you that held Jesus on that cross. A love so deep from God and his son that they would endure the pain that Abraham was spared so you would not have to know God's judgment separation and the consequences of sin on yourself. Secondly, to make a new unbreakable covenant promises like Abraham's only better. You know, the cross more than anything is an unbreakable once and for all time from a promise from God to us. It was just like God's promise to Abraham is not based on merit but merely his grace. Not dependent on our perfect, enduring trust, but his perfect, enduring relationship with us. And it's not built on our success or sacrifice, but his provision on the hill. For God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, he so loved it, he so loved it, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, just like Abraham's promise, all that he asks in return is faith and movement. The promise now stands eternally for all, for whoever simply has faith in Jesus will once and for always be forgiven and will come into an eternal, unbreakable relationship with God. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He wanted to take away all of the consequences of every bit of wrongdoing that can ever happen in your life. And he wanted to make a promise to you. In the same vein as Abraham, a once and for all unbreakable promise to you. If you believe in Jesus, do you know that? is the ground on which you stand. That degree and depth of security. You are forgiven and he has promised himself to you. You know, our culture is more one than ups and downs. We value often feelings and emotion more than we value covenant. In fact, often covenants like this are painted in a negative way, aren't they? You know, marriage dull, it's boring, you're committed, there's cost. In Abraham's life, though, we learn that God is a God of the strongest acts, going, covenants. We see it so clearly, whose promises are entirely based on and upheld by him, even when we fail. And we see the clearest glimpse I can find in scripture that the greatest covenant he wants to make with all mankind 
is this covenant of grace by faith in Christ Jesus.